Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. Jesus, we pray over the preaching of your word today that um, you would be the miracle worker in this room, that our expectation would be through the roof for what you're going to accomplish, that we're not here by accident, but that you actually have an intention for us today. And so, Holy Spirit, we say yes to that, and we look forward to what you're going to do in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated at church I don't know if you're feeling what I'm feeling, but I am starting to feel the pressures of the winter worries. Deny it all you want. I can wear as many of these kinds of shirts as I'd like, but winter is coming. Um, Now, uh, several people have said, is that a new shirt? And I'm like, no, I just only wear it every so often because all the rest of the staff make fun of me. But I actually don't care because here in a few weeks, going on a family vacation to someplace really, really warm. Yeah, yeah, that's right, uh, Talkeetna. So, no, um, we're... <laughs> Anyways, um, we're going to jump right in because we've got some ground to cover today, um, but we're carrying on in this series uh, dissatisfied, a holy discontent. And last week, we really spent a lot of our time looking at this call to contentment that is clearly in the scriptures, right? This invitation to be satisfied in the Lord. And contentment, what we discovered, is not just about um, stuff, money, things. Uh, Paul is most often, when he's talking about contentment, referring to circumstances that are outside of your control or my control. And he's saying that I've discovered the art, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I find myself, with much, with little, uh, with plenty of food, with not enough food, but that contentment is actually something that you can exercise, you can grow in, and actually will settle you in your relationship with God. But we're not wired for contentment, are we? We actually are wired to want more. So my title today is, I'm going to get mine. Uh, My girls have recently discovered Dude Perfect. Um, we're late to the party. I know some of you still don't know what Dude Perfect is, and you're like, why are your girls watching a boy band? It's not a boy band. It's a group of guys who started doing trick shots, became wildly popular, and now they have this whole show broadcast on YouTube. We love it because they're believers. There's never going to be any garbage on there, and so Kitcher and I can just turn it on, and we can leave the house for the day. And our... <laughs> Just kidding. But my girls are loving it. And here's what I've discovered is that um, it doesn't matter whether it's like one of the little seven-minute bits that they do or whether it's a 24-minute bit. Um, At the end of it, my girls are never like, oh, that was good enough. Can't take any more of that. No, they always are saying the same thing. More, just one more. And I think, man, they're just never satisfied. And then I think about myself watching shows in the evening, right? Oh, Kittry, fine. Because you want to, we'll watch. Yeah. Uh, Here's what I've realized. Um, That at the end of the day, there are some desires that will never be satisfied. And there are other desires that will only be satisfied temporarily. 
I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, food is a great example. That favorite thing that you like to eat or maybe that favorite dessert that you have. You could eat enough of that that you, re- you reach a point where you're like, no more, right? And you are satisfied for a little bit. It depends on your metabolism, in fact, how long you're satisfied because it's only a matter of time until you want that thing Again, it's only temporary satisfaction because the desire will come back. And then there are other things that you'll actually never be satisfied at the end of. For example, soap operas. <laughs> now, many of you think I'm talking about days of our lives or general hospital or general days of our lives. I don't even know what they're called. But guys, um, I'm also talking about shows like Seals and you know, some of those um, where you're like, oh, I don't watch soap operas. Yes, you do. They all have the same general idea. At the end, nothing is resolved. And so you're like, like the last season, I believe everyone is dying and I have to wait six months to find out if they did or not, right? Like when I was a kid, I'm at my grandmother's house in Memphis. Um, We would watch, uh, she would watch and I would be in the room, days of our lives. Now, if (laughs) it was not that long ago. (laughs) Now, if you tune in, um, Hope and Bo still aren't together. Like, like I, I think nothing has changed in the entire, uh, because they're designed to always leave you dissatisfied. Like, oh, oh we got to get to the next. And, and the reality is that um, it'll never resolve. It'll always leave you with this hunger for more or this dissatisfaction. It, Proverbs 27 verse 20 actually moves this um, dissatisfaction into a different category. Here's what it says. Just as death and destruction are never satisfied, so human desire is never satisfied. I don't know if you noticed it, compared it with two negative things, death and destruction, human desire is also never satisfied. This actually includes things like the desire for success, which isn't inherently evil, but depending on what motivates success, Here's what it says in Ecclesiastes, the wisest man to live is writing about his observations in the world, and here's what he observes in Ecclesiastes 4.4. Then I observed that most people are motivated to success because they envy their neighbors. But this too is meaningless, like chasing the wind. In other words, if success is motivated by envy, you can chase it all you want, but it'll actually never be satisfied. You won't catch what you're chasing after. Whether or not it would be enough, like how much success would be enough for you? Whether it was how many Instagram followers you had, like how many would be enough? How much money would be enough? How much fame would be enough? How much power would be enough. And if it's rooted, if the motivation for success is rooted in envy, what I can tell you is it will never be enough. If the most motivation is rooted in insecurity, I really want people to like me. I want them to appreciate me. I want them to see who I really am. That actually will never be satisfied because success won't cure insecurity. Success won't cure envy. If it's rooted in pride, I'm going to show you how great I am, then it actually will never be satisfied. If the motivation for success, or anything else for that matter, is rooted in envy, insecurity, or pride, then satisfaction will actually never be found. Now, last week we looked at this. From a biblical understanding, the issue of having desires in and of itself is not the problem. 
right? There's an entire line of thinking, even in Buddhism, that desire is the problem in the world, but it isn't actually the desires themselves that are the problem. If you were to chase any desire backwards to its root desire, maybe a desire to have authority or a desire to have power, that isn't inherently evil. The question is, why do you want it and what are you going to do with it? And it's actually not desires in and of themselves that are evil. It's actually sin and the distortion it brings to our desires that create evil. Which brings me to settlers, sheriffs, and pioneers. Brenning Manning, an author in his uh, book, Lion and Lamb, uh, describes two approaches to the Christian life. And maybe you can relate to these, but he describes them in sort of um, pioneer wagon train days. He, he says, there are the settlers and there are the pioneers in Christianity. And, and the settlers, the settlers are um, looking primarily to arrive somewhere. Arrival is their priority. Uh, the pioneer, it's actually the adventure that is their goal. A settler wants to get where they're going so they can begin to establish security. Their homes, not canvas, but real wood, fences on their property, cultivating their land. But arrival is the goal for a settler. And for a pioneer, it's actually the adventure itself that is the goal, exploring and discovering and making the journey. He describes for the settler, security is the goal. And for the pioneer, searching itself is the goal. The settler wants to get to a place of security and safety. They know where the boundaries are, they know what the fences are, and they know what's theirs and what's not theirs, what to stay away from, and what they can and can't do. But the pioneer, the, the pioneer loves the searching and the discovery. And the other one is, for the settler, the settler views Jesus as the sheriff in town. And pastors are his deputies. Right? And you know that Jesus is going to keep everybody in town in check. He's going to let you know when you're out of line. He's going to use pastors to let you know when you're out of line. But the town is safe because Jesus is here, and Jesus is going to tell you to do what I expect you to do, the right thing. But the pioneer, the pioneer really views Jesus not as a sheriff, but as a scout. He's the one who went out ahead of us. He's discovered these things. He's not saying it's safe to go there, but he's inviting you to come discover what he's found out there in the wide frontier. It's an interesting description of these two types of people. And here's what I appreciate about it. It causes me to pause for a moment and ask some real serious questions about how I live my life and how I relate to others. Am I just looking for safety and security to arrive and stay there, that Jesus is policing everything? And so I ask questions like this one. In what areas of my life have I settled for less when Jesus has offered me more? In what areas of my life have I settled for less than what Jesus saved me for? In what areas have I just said, okay, I'm done, that's good enough, I don't have to keep searching or arriving or creating security? In what areas of my life have I settled for less than what Jesus actually saved me for? But here's what I dislike about the description. If it was treating the two fairly, equally as valuable, it, but it doesn't, it describes pioneers as the adventurous, the risk takers, the free, the bold. It's, that's what it describes the pioneer like. And it describes the settler as the weak and the feeble and the off-kilter, insecure. It's in a demeaning way. And here's what I've discovered over the years. 
Sometimes it's not either or, it's both and. I actually think there are areas in life where we should be settled. And there are areas in life that we're going to continue exploring and discovering for the rest of our lives. I'm often asked by people, um, do you believe this is true or that is true? Usually around theological ideas or uh, ministries that are out there. What do you think about this Christian band? Do you think this is true about them or do you think this is true about them? And Questions like, um, do I believe that we should be living our lives waiting for eternity, focused on the future in eternity with God, or do I believe we should be living our lives enjoying and experiencing all God has for us right here and right now? And my answer is yes. It's both and, not either or, right? Or, or maybe questions like this, um, and you can you know, talk about this at lunch if you want to, um, but do I believe in eternal security... Or do I believe you can lose your salvation? Yes. I don't care if that doesn't resolve it for you because it's not the most important thing on my radar. I I could see both in the scriptures. Often, I'm not an either-or guy. The older I get, the more I find myself thinking in both and terms. But I do believe that we're called to live both searching and settled in some areas at both longing for and satisfied in some things. A couple of examples. I think you could actually be settled in your salvation. You're not actually designed to live your life wondering if God has invited you in or if he's accepted you or any of those things. You could actually be settled there and secure there. You're called to be or to be settled in your identity in Christ. Who does he say that you are? What does he see in you? Or to be settled in your understanding and your obedience to um, clear biblical teachings on things. I actually think you should be settled in those areas. And there are areas I'm invited, actually expected, to be longing and discovering and dissatisfied with where I'm currently at. Areas like um, uh, exploring who God is. Like, knowing God. I mean, how, many, how many of you would say, I'm nailed it, I know everything I need to and everything I can about God? I'll just tell you, if, if that's where you're at, then you don't know the God of the Bible. Because we'll actually spend all of eternity discovering who he is and what he's like. And, and, and so that's actually a lifelong, eternal adventure. I'm not going to stop discovering those things. I'm not settling for a God I created in my own mind. I want to discover the true God, Right? I shouldn't be settled in that, or areas like loving others. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because then they'll be lying, and it's like liar, liar, pants on fire, lake of fire, all that stuff. Um, But how many of you would say, I've nailed that one. I love people perfectly. I never get frustrated with them. I love them like Jesus loved them, right? No, we're actually going to keep exploring, keep discovering what it looks like to grow in relationships Uh, or in the area of holiness, like right living, That's actually something I think for the rest of my life I will be pursuing. But here's what's interesting. For most of my life, I believed that the pursuit of holiness or living like Jesus, being more like Christ, the pursuit of holiness was intended to improve my standing before God. That the more holy I was, the more God loved me. 
And that actually is not a biblical description of holiness at all. It was when I discovered that actually the pursuit of holiness is not to improve my standing before God. That was settled in the person of Jesus, or we're talking about a different religion altogether. My pursuit of holiness was actually intended to enhance my enjoyment of God. It doesn't improve my standing before God. That's Jesus' business, but it can enhance my enjoyment of God. And that's actually what the intention of holiness is. And if that's true, then I want to keep pursuing that for the rest of my life. I actually love the way that C.S. Lewis describes this. The Christian does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. See the difference? Now, the Christian believes that God doesn't love us because we're good, but that God would actually make us good because he loves us. And I'm going to be in pursuit of that for the rest of my life. So last week we touched on four areas in which we should experience a holy dissatisfaction. In the areas of worship, relationships, spiritual growth, and kingdom participation. And I'm going to do my best in the next few minutes to hit two of these. Worship and relationships. Here's how I defined worship last week. Worship is the ways in which I express my reverence for God, my devotion to God, and my adoration of God. Which, by the way, is a whole lot more than four songs on a Sunday. It actually encompasses all of life. Worship is a way in which we live, which brings me to theology and doxology. Theology, simply put, is um, the study, and I would add to that not only the study, but also the discovery of who God is. What is God like? What is God like and dislike? But who is God in his character and in his nature? That is really what theology is. But maybe you've heard this term before, doxology, in reference to songs that we sing, the doxology. Doxology is really just simply put, and this would be the definition, um, a hymn or form of words containing an ascription of praise to God. Doxology is just the response to our theology. Like, what do I think God is like in his character and nature? And in response to that, I'm expressing it not just with my words, but also with my life. Theology, truth, and doxology, worship. Now, in John chapter 4, there is a very intriguing interaction between a Jewish man and a Samaritan woman. If you grew up in church, or you've been around church much at all, you've probably heard this story in some form or another over time. And it's a, I just reached my goal of 150-something. I don't know. My watch just told me. Anyways. Jesus is going to have an interaction with a Samaritan woman. I want you to understand a couple of things about the Samaritans before we go any further. And the first thing is this. Um, Jews and Samaritans do not like each other. They have a similar heritage and lineage, um, but Jews would do everything in their power to skip even traveling through Samaritan territory. So the fact that Jesus is in Samaritan territory, let alone the fact that he is meeting up and having a conversation with a Samaritan woman is astounding all by itself. But here's the primary difference between Samaritans and Jews. And, and here's the thing. It's a theological difference. The Samaritans believe that only the first five books of the Old Testament are Scripture. They only accept Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 
which is intriguing in light of the conversation that Jesus is about to have with this woman, because in the first five books of the Old Testament, there's a location identified as the place where God gave blessing to Israel in the Holy Land, in the Promised Land, and where sacrifices were offered. And because they only accept the first five books of the Old Testament, they don't accept the rest of the story about David and Solomon and Jerusalem and the temple being built and God showing up there. All of that is not on their radar. And so the place, Gerizim, where the blessing was pronounced and the sacrifices were offered is actually the place they believe God established as where he should be worshipped. And the Jews believe the temple in Jerusalem is the place. And this has created a major divide between them, which is shocking because typically doctrinal or theological things don't do that in the church. (laughs) Stay with me, okay. So Jesus is going to show up at a well. It's about noon, which, by the way, is not when people go to get water in a well because typically in the morning is when the water is nice and cool, right? But this woman is out there by herself. And you're going to find out why in a moment, but she's wanting to avoid the sideways looks and the jokes and the sneers coming from other people in her community for a real specific reason. But Jesus is there. She goes out for some water, and Jesus is there for her. And when she shows up, he asks her for a drink of water which is alarming to her, and the text tells us this. It's alarming to her all by itself that a Jewish man would ask her for water. And Jesus responds to this by saying, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for some water. And she says, you don't even have a bucket or a rope. Like, how could you be giving me water? And Jesus says, I could give you water that if you drank it, you would never thirst again. Now, you probably hear that sort of through this spiritual filter, She was hearing it through a very practical filter, like water that I would never thirst again. I got to get me some of that because then I wouldn't have to come out here and deal with this every single day. So here it is, John chapter 4, verse 15. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I will never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. I won't have to come out here. I won't have to walk past everyone. I won't have to listen to their jokes. and uh, Then I wouldn't have to come out here to get water. So Jesus says something interesting. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. And she says, I don't have a husband, the woman replied. And Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Ooh, that got personal fast. Man, I love some of this water. Tell me about your shame. Let's dig in. Let's unpack some stuff here. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Jesus has zero intention of shaming this woman. Jesus is actually inviting her to acknowledge the truth about her situation. And she has lived in guilt and shame for so long, she has no interest in this conversation. But Jesus is not doing this to embarrass her or guilt her or shame her. No one else is around. In fact, on another occasion, when some men bring a woman caught in adultery to Jesus because they're about to stone her to death, Jesus shames the men, not the woman, right? It isn't Jesus' intention. Jesus' intention is for her to acknowledge who she is and where she's at. We're not told why her husbands have left her or that this man that she's living with now, which, by the way, he's sort of making the point that just because you live with someone doesn't mean you're married to them, that a biblical marriage, a biblical covenant is something other than that. And she views all this as the piling on of shame and 
guilt. And so she does something that I think we all do. She's going to deflect in this moment. Hey, let's talk about your life. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So let's talk about theology and doctrine instead. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshiped? And Jesus just goes with it. He like doesn't try to correct her and like, nope, that wasn't what I was talking about. You answer my question first and I'll answer your question like I do with my kids, right? Like I ask the question first. He's like, that's, that's, that's fair, right? Verse 21, Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. No self-respecting Jew would have ever said that. This was the theological thing that would incite a riot. Like, oh, you want to talk about that? And Jesus says the time's coming, actually, when it's not going to matter, whether it's Jerusalem or whether it's this mountain. It actually isn't about that. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. I, I want to bring this into a really unpractical uh, application, because often I've read that, and I'm like, oh, snap. I'm like, oh, yeah? Well, you're an idiot, and I'm really smart. But that's not what Jesus... He's like literally referencing, you only embrace five books of the Old Testament, which limits your perspective of who God is, and we Jews embrace all of the Old Testament. So we have a full picture of what God is like. He's actually referencing something really practical here. Five books versus all the books, right? And Jesus is actually just saying, listen, this is the truth about the situation. And then he says, for salvation comes not for, but through the Jews. He's identifying it, and this would have been very foreign. He's identifying that it actually is just coming through his people, not exclusively for his people. It's for you too, lady, living in your guilt and your shame and deflecting to doctrinal and theological things rather than letting me put my finger on the stuff I really want to put my finger on. It's actually for you also. But the time is coming, indeed is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. Now listen, for God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. I'll be entirely honest. I've taught on this passage numbers of times. I've heard lots of sermons on this passage, and I've always been a little bit confused as to what this passage is really talking about. Like, I've talked about how uh, right theology is important, truth, right? And I've talked about how worshiping in the spirit is important, you know, spirit-led. If you don't lift your hands, you're not really worshiping, you know... I, actually, I've never said that, but I just, those kinds of things. And yet I actually think Jesus is not talking about any of that in this passage. I actually think it's a lot more practical than that. In fact, Jesus was just in a conversation one chapter earlier with a guy named Nicodemus, a brilliant religious leader in the community who knew the scriptures well. And Jesus says something to him that is alarming and confusing. Nicodemus wants to know how to inherit eternal life. And so Jesus says, well, I can tell you, you cannot inherit eternal life unless you are born again, which if you grew up around Christian lingo and all of that, which most or many of us have here in the U.S., you're like, yeah, 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 born again. But put it in the context of having no idea what that means, like Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is like, Jesus, that's weird and creepy. He literally says to Jesus, how can a grown man enter into his mother's womb again 
and be born. Gross. And Jesus goes on to explain to him, and here's what Jesus says, John 4, I'm sorry, John 3, verse 5 and 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water or of the flesh, my water broke, of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. This is not a passage about baptism. It's a passage about being born again, even though you've been born naturally into the world. And here's what Jesus is saying, that unless you're actually born of the spirit of God, you cannot worship in the truth about God that unless you've actually experienced rebirth in the kingdom of heaven, that the Spirit of God has entered you and brought you back to life from death, you actually don't have the capacity to worship in the truth. The woman actually knows exactly what Jesus is talking about, unlike Nicodemus. He says, you must worship in spirit and in truth. And she says back to Jesus, I know the Messiah is coming. It's a weird thing to say in response to that. I know the Messiah is coming, the truth is coming, and when he comes, he will teach us everything. And Jesus says, I am the Messiah. This woman, living in all of her guilt and shame and anxiety over this moment, wanting to deflect and talk about other things rather than the real thing, this woman is the first person in the scriptures that Jesus reveals himself to as the Messiah. It's her. He's waited for this moment with this Samaritan woman and all of her shame and her guilt, and he wants her to know, I'm the Messiah you've been waiting for. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if you would be born of the Spirit, living water, if you were to be born of the Spirit, and you were to discover the truth, me, you could worship the Father no matter where you were. If you would let me put my finger on those things in your identity that I want to deal with, you could actually worship in the way you were created to. I would say it like this. True worship of God the Father is only possible through new life in God the Spirit, which was made possible by God the Son. True worship of God the Father is only possible through new life in God the Spirit, which was made possible by God the Son. Jesus is actually unveiling the Trinity in this passage and inviting this woman to experience all that God is. True worship is a whole lot more than music or your money. True, true worship actually is the surrender to the authority of Jesus and submitted to the direction of the Holy Spirit in every area of life. That's what true worship is. We, we use phrases like um, uh, houses of worship, but if I were to put a picture of my house on the screen, that is also a house of worship. Like, what would it look like to love my family as worship to God? What would it look like to go to the workplace as worship to God? I was talking with a friend here a while back, um, and I was challenging him. I was like, hey, listen, you want to step into leadership, uh, spiritual leadership? Buckle up, buttercup. Like, it ain't easy. And these are the things. God wants to pull this stuff out of your heart. He wants to uproot it. He wants to deal with your identity, all those things. And he says to me, he says, that's why I'm not a preacher. I'm like, oh, yes, you are. You are. You know that, right? You just have a different pulpit than I do. Right? In fact, this isn't actually my pulpit. My life is. The way I live a life of worship before, all of it is actually an act of worship, including my relationships 
we define relationship in this way. The way in which I'm connected to others in healthy, life-giving friendship. Now, a lot of the guys in the room are like, yeah, it's time to go. Like, you're going over today. I can already tell. Let's skip this part. But, but really, um, relationships are critical, which brings me to bruised but bonded. Many of my ex-military friends, um, the biggest challenges for them quite often are found in two areas. The first one is um, camaraderie. How can I find people who get me, who have experienced what I experienced? They built these bonds on the battlefield or in times of suffering, uh, but they built these bonds, and those bonds are actually built through adversity. And, and now I don't know if anyone gets me, if anyone understands me. How do I find camaraderie? And then how do I find clear purpose for my life? Like I knew what my mission was before. I knew what the authority structure was before. I was told and I could accomplish it. I could succeed at it. But now I don't know why on earth I'm here. And they're really describing worship, why on earth am I here? And relationships, who are my people? Where are my teammates? And that can be really hard to find. And I found that it, hasn't, it actually isn't just for my ex-military friends. It's for most of us. Relationships are hard. You know why? Because you're in them. <laughs> Let's try that again. Relationships are hard. You know why? Because you're in them. Because I'm in them. And we're imperfect people. And, and the real challenge isn't um, with imperfect people. The challenge is actually with our insecurities. We actually sabotage our own relationships because we actually haven't let Jesus have the conversation that he wants to at the well. Hey, could you just acknowledge who you really are and what's really going on here? Because if you would, then you could experience what I actually have for you. If you get a chance, um, I want you to just take a look um, at uh, Genesis 32 um, and 31, because in Genesis 31 and 32, there's the story of a guy named Esau and Jacob. And Jacob, his name literally means deceiver, supplanter. And he has ruined every relationship he's ever been in. Like, he, he stole from his brother the birthright and the blessing from dad. His mom joined in in the deception. His brother Esau discovers that his brother Esau is a hunter. Like, he's a man's man, and he's going to kill Jacob as soon as the funeral's over. Like, his, his mom comes to Jacob, and she says, Your brother, the only thing that has him happy right now is the... This is literally what she says. The only thing that has him happy right now is the thought of killing you as soon as the funeral's over. You should run for your life. And so he does. He runs from that relationship. He had done serious damage, lied to his father, deceived his brother, stole from his brother, and so he runs to extended family a long ways away because he thinks that will protect him. But now those relationships are falling apart too. He hears murmurings and rumors, and he allows how they feel about him to ruin those relationships, and so he's going to cut bait and run from the next relationship also. In fact, as soon as any relationship gets challenging for Jacob, Jacob is out of there. I'm not sticking around for this. Here's the problem. Jacob only has one place to go. If he's going to leave Laban, he's going back to Esau. And that relationship has been ruined. You ever felt like that? Like, I guess I'm all alone. Everybody's a knucklehead. Nobody can be trusted. I'm out of here. I'm going to move on to the next relationship. What I've discovered over the years, because in Laban's case, it's actually Laban who does wrong to Jacob. 
Jacob had actually done everything in his power. He'd been deceived by Laban. He'd been lied to by Laban. He's going to be chased down by Laban and threatened by Laban. And, but here's the reality. There are wounds that you and I have experienced in relationships, many of them from our childhood. There are wounds that we've experienced in relationships, but there are also wounds that we've inflicted in our relationships. Relationships are hard because we're in them. It's interesting because as he gets closer to home, he realizes he's got to deal with this thing with Esau. So he sends some servants ahead to sort of butter Esau up. They go to Esau and they're like, hey, your brother Jacob's coming home. And he's wondering if you're going to kill him. Your brother Jacob's coming home. He's your servant. He's been really successful. He's got some gifts for you, but he's doing everything in his power to butter Esau up, you know, before they actually see each other. In fact, finally what he decides to do is he's going to put um, all of his people, all of his animals, and his family out in front of him on the other side of the river. That's how awesome Jacob is. Like, that way, if Esau starts killing them, I can get away. He's a deceiver. The, the servants come back and they're like, hey, we saw your brother Esau. It was so good to see him. He's just like you said. Here's what you need to know. He's got 400 soldiers with him and he's on his way to see you. And Jacob is terrified. He's running from a relationship back to a relationship that he's damaged. And listen to what happens. Genesis 32, verses 24 through 28. He sends his family across the river. He's all by himself in his little campsite now. This left Jacob all alone in the camp, and a man came and wrestled with him until dawn began to break. When the man saw that he could not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of socket. Then the man said, let me go, for dawn is coming. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. An interesting passage. In fact, um, it came up today. Somebody asked me, they said, do you believe this is a Christophany? That this is a moment when Jesus shows up, when God shows up and wrestles with Jacob? Or do you think this was an angel? Or do you think it was something else? And I said, I don't care. Because the scriptures don't explicitly tell us, which tells me it's not the point. But we'd love to get distracted by that, wouldn't we? Let's talk about that instead of what's actually about to happen. I will not let you go unless you bless me. So here's how he gets blessed. What is your name? The man asked. And he replied, Jacob. He replied, I'll tell you who I am. I'm a deceiver. I'm a supplanter. His name literally means that. It's why he was given his name. Because he grabbed his brother's heel on the way out of the womb. And, and because ever since then, he's been trying to take from others through deception. What's your name? Ah, let's not talk about that. Let's talk about whether this is a Christophany. But he actually says, you tell me who you are, not because I want to shame you or guilt you, because I want to tell you who you are in me. What's your name? My name is Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel, which literally means wrestled with God, because you have fought with God and with men and have prevailed. Because I want to say this. If I will not speak the truth about who I am in my brokenness, I will not be able to fully embrace 
my true identity in Christ. And I'll tell you, out of personal experience, that is a wrestling match. Where God is trying to pin me, not, not to shame me, not to guilt me, but that I would own what's really going on in here so that he could heal me. I want to invite you to stand with us. What I've discovered is that the number one barrier to healthy relationships is not imperfect people. It's insecure people. I sabotage my relationships often because I'm afraid of being known. I'm afraid of being found out or discovered. I'm afraid of being rejected. But when I could live in that identity that Christ has given to me, I could actually love people in the way that he has loved me. I'm going to give you an assignment over this week. So the next time you're angry or frustrated with someone, ask two questions. Here's the first one. When was the last time I did something similar to what I'm angry with them about? When's the last time I was selfish or deceptive or rude? It's painful, but ask yourself the question, when was the last time I did something similar to what I'm angry with them about? And here's the second question. What emotion am I really feeling right now and why? And I'm going to give you a hint. It's actually rarely anger. Anger is just the easiest emotion to express because it's a powerful emotion. It's a strong emotion. But when you begin to ask those two questions, what you'll discover is I'm experiencing fear of being rejected. I'm experiencing something other more often than not than actually just anger. Anger is what I'm expressing, but what I'm actually experiencing. If you could let the Holy Spirit put his finger on that, you would begin to get to those places that he wants to heal in your life. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play.